Five months in, there had been talk about a hostage deal possible, but an incident in Gaza, shooting incident at a food distribution point might derail that. Also, the Biden administration losing patience and the heat is on inside Niao's coalition. We will also be talking to author, comedian and cultural icon David Badil. It's Unholy. I'm Yannick Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. It's unholy to Jews on the news. Um, so often this happens where, you know, we think we're going to take a step back and get the big picture and instead news uh, breaks. At this stage, it's obviously the details are pretty sketchy of what exactly has happened in Gaza as you and I talk on Thursday. But yeah, as, as you said, they're throwing into doubt uh, the, the hopes, the talk there had been of some kind of breakthrough. Joe Biden has said it would come by Monday. We'll get into all of that. We had also just wanted to take stock in a way of what these last five months have felt like where you are and, and where I am. I do feel like over these five months, can you believe next week it will have been five months um, where did all this time go, right? I mean, what did we do besides trying to remember how to breathe and not be sad and anxious all the time and hide horrible truths from our children and maybe from ourselves? But I feel like I've been talking a lot about what it's felt like to be an Israeli during this period. And I am really interested in what it feels like to be you, I mean, to be Jewish in the UK uh, over these past five months. Well, it, it's funny because you you did ask me that you know, in one of our sort of WhatsApp exchanges earlier this week. And as it happens, uh, an Israeli friend, friend was visiting and we were sitting in my, you know, at my kitchen table. And I said, you know what it's like? It's like when you can just put the news on at any moment and the way things are at the moment, it's all about you, meaning it's about Israel or it's about Jews. That is what is it's like at the moment. And it was one of those funny things where I looked at my watch and it was about two minutes to six in the evening, I said, you know what, I'm going to do this now. I'm going to put the BBC radio six o'clock news on. And I'm going to show you what I mean. And I had no idea because I hadn't been following the news that, that, that afternoon. And sure enough, I put the radio on. And the first five stories were either anti-Semitism, or responses to Islamophobia that were related to Gaza, or Gaza, or Jews somehow. And then the first story that wasn't, I think, was about the cricket and England and India, the test match. And I then sort of clipped it and sent it to you, sent it to you as a message because, you know, my visiting Israeli friend was like, well, that is unbelievable, actually, that, you, you know, I knew it was bad. I hadn't realized it was that bad. And I say bad because it's a, it's a very intrusive feeling to feel that all the time you're part of this small community, 270,000 here in Britain, but other diaspora communities, where somehow there's just this people sort of prodding and poking and discussing you. I don't mean just about the Israel-Gaza war. I mean also about, you know, there's been a string of stories. We might get into some of them about specifically anti-Semitism. What is it? What isn't it? What counts? And there's items about, you know, what, what anti-Zionism is. You're just feeling like you're being talked about. You're under the microscope all the time. That feels, you know, violating is too strong, but it feels intrusive. And then there's the other dread, which is, which you and I have talked about a lot, which is what new terrible things are going to come out on the, on the news about the war in Gaza, because there's this nagging sense. And we're going to talk about this a bit with our guest, David Badil, but this nagging sense that rightly or wrongly, and it's almost always wrongly, Jews will be blamed for what's going on. Jews in Britain will be blamed for something going on thousands of miles away. So your heart sinks. Your heart sinks in two ways. First, at the horrible thing itself. And then the second thing is that you know that somehow you know, there will be graffiti sprayed on a Jewish school. There'll be red paint thrown at, thrown at a synagogue. There'll be kids on their way to classes who will be harassed or abused. You know, I saw a friend mm -hmm. visiting this week who was visiting from Boston. He's, you know, daughter's at college there. He just pulls up on his phone, shows me a picture. It's a sort of one of those stencil spray-painted things. It looks like an Israeli flag until you look closer. The Star of David's replaced by a blue and white swastika. This is, that's in the United States. So this is just 
what it is like all the time. There's two levels, grieving and distressed for Israelis, also grieving and distressed for the pain of Palestinians, but this other nagging sense that one way or another, we will be held to account for it. Yeah, I can, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about that. And I feel like just the basic, before we even arrive at what you were describing, which is, you know, depleting in itself. And, and I think it probably exhausting to feel that way all the time where you just want people to stop talking about this topic, but also just thinking about, you know, in Israel, everyone is heartbroken, but everyone feels that feeling and you can take a little bit of comfort in that in the in the community and the fact that the whole country feels the same and and when you're in a minority then you feel terrible but everyone else's lives is continue you know are continuing and and that is i think that is part of what is i guess what you're feeling um no that's definitely right and um, this is not a collective experience as a society whereas obviously i know from our conversations and from seeing it with my own eyes that Israel, for all the differences and arguments and strains, the society is going through it together. That can, mm -hmm. that is absolutely not the case here. That instead, and this has been one of the news stories of the week, that, you know, central London every week, every Saturday are huge, and I mean huge demonstrations against Israel. And, you know, yes, of course, there are some Jews who march in those demonstrations, but lots of other Jews, again, you can debate with them whether they should feel this, but they feel intimidated mm -hmm. by them. They feel they can't, they don't feel comfortable going on, you know, buses and trains on those days because they just, they're being bombarded with all those signs and placards, again, most of which perhaps are inoffensive, but some are definitely not. And that creates a feeling. And also, it just means that, that even if, you know, the reporting is not directly about it, somehow it comes back to it. So you've had all these partisan arguments that are going on in British politics in which anti-Semitism is one of the political battles. So the Conservatives always accuse Labour of being insufficiently vigilant on anti-Semitism. Labour accused the Conservatives of having an Islamophobia problem. And these communities are become sort of political footballs. And it's constant. So today, Thursday, we'll, the listeners will know the result by Friday morning. But today, Thursday, there's a special election, a by-election, in the northern town of Rochdale, where the official candidate was effectively dropped by Labour because recording showed him saying that Israel deliberately allowed October the 7th to happen. They took the security off. It was part of a devious, cunning plan to invade Gaza. So Labour have dropped that candidate. Instead, the likely potential winner, George Galloway, uh, who's been a member of parliament many times, who is you know famous for his implacable, uh, vehement opposition to Israel, everything about Israel, it's just day by day that one way or another, mm -hmm. you cannot put the news on, unless you only listen to a sports channel, you cannot put the news on without it being Israel, Jews, Jews, Israel, Israel, Gaza, Jews, Jews, anti-Semitism, Israel. That's the thing. And when you're going through it, you're going through it as somebody who's in, as, as I said, the group being talked about, but also since you're out of step with how mm -hmm. most people in the country feel. Yeah, well, I feel for you on all that. I will say something about this week feel le felt like in Israel just to sort of close up our discussion of, of what we feel almost five months in. It, it's a very bizarre week here because in some ways, reality, you know, local elections are happening. Television is sort of back to regular programming and not 24 hour uh, news. People are talking about their Pesach vacation. So there's this veneer, right? This layer over the tip of the volcano as if we are living that past life where everything was normal. But, you know, actually there is a war. There are hostages in Gaza. There might be a war up north. There are still 200,000 displaced Israelis. So it's kind of this weird way in which the, the whole country was derailed on October 7th. And the train is like completely derailed, but we're seeing these pictures from our past lives. It's a very surreal kind of uh, um, feeling, I think. Um, yeah. And I guess this is our new normal. I mean, this will continue to be the case for both of us for, for a while. I think that's right. And there was this delusion that somehow, or illusion that, um, or consolation that somehow this would be temporary and this yeah. would be over in a few weeks or a few months. Yeah. Or, 
and it's just on and on and it's March. And, you know, I clung to those predictions of when it was going to end. I've now trying to adjust psychologically and think it's never going to end. This is just how it's going to be. And then if it somehow stops, you know, that will be a bonus, but don't try and get your hopes up. Just one thing I was going to mention when you say about things getting back to normal on one of those radio bulletins that I, that I was referring to, they do at the sort of midway point, they sometimes play a little bit of sound that sort of hints at what's to come and often a lighter item. So on the news, having been just Israel, Gaza, anti-Semitism, etc., they then, there was a burst of music and they said, and coming up, Eurovision. And I thought, oh, good. Okay. Yeah. So that's the light relief. And they went, Eurovision, a row has erupted over the content of Israel's entry <sighs> and the Eurovision authorities want to you know, examine the lyrics to make sure it's not political. There is, it feels like truly, unless you only watch football all the time, there is no escape from this. Mm. And, you know, just when you mentioned there about things going back to normal, Eurovision would be a sign of normality. Even that is not normal. We should, um, talk though about this event that has, uh, occurred just as we record. Details are obviously sketchy at the moment, but it's um, yet more death coming out of Gaza. The, the, the reports that we've both seen suggest that there was a sort of rush at one of those food distribution points. Gazans obviously have been um, in need of humanitarian aid, in need of food, and that there was some sort of onrush where there was a disturbance in, in the uh, Israeli army account. Soldiers felt they were themselves in danger. They were under threat. They shot initially, it said, into the air. Then they shot at the people rushing them below the knees. But reports that we're both seeing suggest scores of Gazans killed. Yes, the um, Israeli version, again, this has just happened. So there will be time to investigate what exactly happened there. The Israeli version of it says two things. Importantly, one, that the uh, soldiers only shot when there was a group heading their way and that they felt that were endangering them. And then they, uh, again, as the Israeli version goes, uh, did everything in their can in their way, including shooting in the air, uh, etc., to prevent this. They also say, which is not mentioned in a lot of the foreign reports, is that Hamas uh, were, was shooting at the people themselves, uh, trying to prevent them from looting this humanitarian aid. What it is clear, what is completely clear is that uh, there are people who need this food so much so that they will crowd in this kind of way. And it is also clear that, you know, Hamas is using every opportunity possible to now say this incident will now derail the hostage negotiations, which up until now, all the parties involved actually felt uh, was going in a good direction. One thing to add to anyone asking why the military was so close, we should say that the Israeli military guards these convoys so that they do actually arrive to the people who need them. That is the reason why the military is pretty close by when these convoys uh, travel, because usually it's Hamas who is looting these, uh, Hamas who has ample food, by the way, we should say, uh, is looting these, these trucks. So that I think should be uh, noted. Yeah, you mentioned uh, the point about food. I mean, I think this has been something which had really was cutting through even people who had otherwise slightly sort of tuned out of the conflict. These reports of a famine and footage of, you know, desperately hungry children and people from UN agencies, the World Food Programme and others warning of real catastrophe in terms of shortage of food. Um, Samantha Power, the head of USAID, is actually on the ground. She was at the Karen Shalom crossing, watching aid go through. So this is, you know, even added to what was already a huge sort of crisis situation just through the, the conflict piled onto that now is this other uh, layer and all of that adding to just huge pressure driving this sense around the world, that this just cannot go on any longer, this terrible sort of impatience for there to be a breakthrough. You know, Joe Biden said just the other day that he uh, he thought that there would be uh, a deal done on Monday, March the 4th. A few people noticed the timing that he said that on the eve of a primary in Michigan, which has a very large Arab American community centered on the town of Dearborn, Michigan. And was he saying that to try and sort of still some of the anger in that state. It seemed to me very optimistic at the time, but now, as you say, 
some noises saying whatever progress was possible or likely has been badly derailed or unsettled by this. And of course, if the death toll climbs, that could that those fears will grow. Yes, but we should mention that there is a lot of pressure put on Hamas, particularly, to arrive at a deal. You know, the fact that Bill Burns, director of the CIA, is deeply involved here, Qatar and Egypt pressuring Hamas to end this before Ramadan, which is happening at the beginning in the second week of, of March. I mean, there is a lot of pressure here and also internal pressure on the Israeli government to arrive at a deal to begin releasing a hostages. I wouldn't uh, lose hope on this because I think up until yesterday, it still was something that looked like uh, is a possibility. And of course, for, for everyone who, particularly the Biden administration, who wants a ceasefire, this is the way to get it, to say, OK, you're going to release hopefully 45 uh, Israeli hostages for 45 days of a ceasefire and then what uh, the Biden administration that is fast losing patience with Netanyahu thinks there will not be a return to the war. And you also hear people like Benny Gantz saying, you know, we are going to enter Rafa if you don't, if you Hamas don't give us our hostages back. So it's clear that there is something, uh, so much pressure being put here on the table so that we will actually arrive at a hostage deal. Well, I hope so. And um, if anything, the horror uh, of events that we've about which reports are emerging should add to that pressure, because it should be argued that all the more reason why a humanitarian pause, an end to fighting so that aid can get through, today's events show uh, all the more vividly why that is so necessary. That would be an argument you could make. And it also shows that there needs to be some sort of formidable power in place here. Many of in the international community think that, but if, because if not, you're going to continue to see Hamas trying to loot these uh, aid trucks, which is the opposite of what is supposed to happen if there was some sort of uh, force here that could deal with with those kinds of, of issues. I think that we should probably discuss the big political drama that uh, um, began yesterday with, I should say, something that sounded like quite an innocuous statement by Minister of Defense Yoav Gallant. You know, it's interesting, Jonathan, I kept saying to you, look at the government and you will know that it is coming apart when you look at Itamar Ben-Gvir or look at Benny Gantz. One of these two personalities, one of these two ministers can unravel the coalition. I didn't tell you, look at Yoav Gallant, which you should have been doing and I should have been doing as well. Now, let's let's begin with what what he said. Okay, what he said was, and this has to do with the draft bill, the bill that discusses the essentially the exemption of uh, the ultra orthodox from military service. That uh, bill or what was in place essentially uh, is um, now expiring. And the Supreme Court and the attorney general said to the Israeli government, you have to write a new bill up until March 31st. So that is the deadline on the table. What happened yesterday was that Yoav Gallant uh, came out in front of the cameras, 7.30 in the evening, primetime television, right before the main news edition, and said, I will only take this bill and accept it and support it if all of the pieces of the government support it as well. Now, Yoav Gallant knows pretty well that what Benny Gantz wants to do with this draft bill and what the ultra-Orthodox want to do with the draft bill is completely different, because just to say this as simply as possible, the ultra-Orthodox don't want, want full exemption, and Benny Gantz says, over 10 years, everyone is going to have to do some sort of service. It could be national service, it could be community service, it could be some sort of military service, but everyone, including the ultra-Orthodox and including the Arab Israelis, are going to have to do this. If this law is not written until March 31st, there will be a conscription of ultra-Orthodox, and very importantly, the budgets for their uh, yeshivot, for where they learn Torah, will be cut. And that the ultra-Orthodox cannot agree to. So essentially what Yoav Gallant did is put a small time bomb under the desk of the Israeli government yesterday. Because he knows there won't be a deal that the entire coalition can agree on. There cannot be. And therefore, he's saying, absent a deal, come April the 1st, the government, the, the, the sort of government, the state position is that everyone has to be called up. And of course, that will be unacceptable. And those ultra-Orthodox parties will walk. I mean, it's a deadline. It's a whole other month. 
Israel always struck me as being like, you know, the old famous Perils of Pauline film where the, those old silent films where the woman will be strapped to the railway tracks and the train is coming at her and, you know, the episode ends with you thinking she can never get away and suddenly the next episode begins with her being unbound seconds before. Somehow. That was Netanyahu's political career in one image, what you just said. <laughs> that's the image. So I sort of think, you know, I'm not holding my breath for that, but I agree. I mean, it's a really interesting move by Galan. We should remember that uh, No Love Lost between him and the Prime Minister, who of course fired him and then sort of informally unfired, unofficially Almost unfired a year ago. him. Um, uh, back in the, yes, it was, it was last, this time last year, March. more or less. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and so no love lost. Uh, you know, I understand that they barely speak to each other except in the formality of those sort of war cabinet meetings. So a very dysfunctional situation. Now that is really, uh, worth watching. We've always wondered, as you said, of where the pressure will come. I, I was just going to talk about the, it's some more on the external pressure. Because you you mentioned right at the top that it's facing heat from both inside and outside. Just mention this about um, Joe Biden. He really has to get some kind of deal. I mean, he for one thing, he said it's going to be my March the 4th. It's a loss of face if it doesn't happen. Forget the deadline. If he doesn't get a deal at all, it suggests his writ does not run when it comes to the government of Israel, that he has done shown all the love. He said he's feel he's with Israel, with his kishkas. You're meant to get some leverage from that. And if he just cannot get Israel to do this deal or to stop where his own domestic opinion now, and I think it will be added to with these recent events, but also reports of starvation and famine in Gaza, people will think he is weak. And the number one problem Joe Biden have is linked to absolutely with his age is the sense of weakness. He cannot be seen to be this weak. And so I think they, the, that, that is tremendous political pressure. It was distilled quite powerfully in a column from friend of the podcast, Tom Friedman of the New York Times, who wrote a column saying, here is my message to the government of Israel and to the Biden administration. The world is losing patience with Israel, and that its number one asset, sort of legitimacy, is draining out fast. He talked to having, uh, about having been in India, where I was, saying he even, a country as friendly to Israel as India, is running out of patience for the way Israel is. This is a global feeling, and the I think recent events will add to it. So yes, pressure from inside, around the cabinet table, huge pressure from outside. People want this thing. I know they're different at competing pressures, but they do want this thing over. And they want it over before a Ramadan. And I'm hearing more and more from people, you know, I'm sad to say this is an Israeli, but I think we need to face up to reality that more and more people who are very pro-Israel in all kinds of uh, places around the world who are growing impatient would be uh, uh, an understatement at what is happening, particularly when they feel that the Israeli government and the prime minister are not giving a vision of what the future is supposed to look like. So that is very problematic. And I've heard from, you know, senior officials in the White House said to me, listen, Israel Israel wants all of our support, but it's not willing to listen to us. And that will become, and it's it's not will become, it has become an issue um, very much in, in Washington and elsewhere. And just a coder on that, this point about the lack of a plan for afterwards in the, we, we weren't, uh, up with a podcast last week, but Netanyahu published his day after plan, such as it was. It was seen as implausible. I'm putting it very gently by governments around the world. It had, it basically ensured permanent Israeli presence in the West Bank and in Gaza security presence. That for that read occupation, that's how that's understood. No role for even a revamped or revitalized Palestinian authority, which is what the Biden administration envisage. Instead, just talking about local elements will run the stuff and that's run the show. And even the people putting up the money have to be acceptable to Israel. Well, news for the government. There are not, there's not a long line of people wanting to put up the money to rebuild Gaza and they won't do it if they feel the upshot will be a rebuilt Gaza that then is destroyed again in two years time or three years time in another round. Patience is absolutely at the very, very end. The sand has run out of the hourglass in terms of people's forbearance of Israel. And your understanding is completely right. It's people who have historically been Israel's friends who are saying this most. Um, should we just did I do a little bit of Jonathan? Was that a little bit Jonathan right there? 
I think I may have become. I think what happened in five months, I became a little bit of John. You know, people have noticed. Still that I'm an Israeli bit. cookie, but with some English chocolate chips, right? People okay. have noticed me having a little inner voice of Yonit as well. So I think we're both learning from each other. Um, <laughs> should we just clock the fact there were some local elections in Israel this week? Um, big gains for the ultra orthodox and the particularly ultra right in Jerusalem, yes. mm-hmm. and a very opposite result in Tel Aviv. Yeah, I mean, generally speaking, this the, the local elections were pushed back twice because of the war. They weren't held uh, in the northern part of Israel and the southern part of Israel where people are still displaced and they can't vote. To me, like the interesting thing about it was in Tel Aviv, the liberal capital of Israel, essentially, um, where you have people who, let's say most of them oppose Netanyahu and think he should leave power and leave office and he's been prime minister for too long after 16 years, but will gleefully vote for Ron Khurdai, who's been mayor for 25 years. Of course, a very different personality, very different political views, but just on that. Um, yes, as, as you said, generally more gains in a lot of interesting areas for the ultra-Orthodox who do show up on election day. So you had Arad and Sfat. Those are still mixed cities. A big question over, question mark over Bet Shemesh. A lot of places in which the ultra-Orthodox uh, showed up and in some places changed the uh, makeup of the uh, city council and uh, of the head of the city council. But I think another thing, yeah, sorry, you want to say something? Just, just on the gap that is opening up, I mean, people from outside Israel are often astonished to discover that Jerusalem and Tel Aviv are, you know, an hour apart and yet different worlds mm-hmm. with Jerusalem ever more religious, now an overall majority in the hands of ultra-Orthodox and, and nationalist parties. And Tel Aviv, you know, um, just this westernized and obviously militantly secular liberal city confirming that. The thing that just dug into me um, was Ron Huldai for Labour winning in, in Tel Aviv, a party that may not make it into the Knesset, nevertheless can win in the biggest population centre of the country. That is a paradox, how this party yeah. can dominate the big city. Uh, right. I know it's partly personal, it's, it's, it's him really, but still, it's just a, it's a, for me as somebody who's a kind of a, can be a bit of an elections nerd, yeah. that was interesting. Yeah, you were. Fo- I know you're sitting up following the election results in Bet Shemesh. Are the, is there going to be a second round? I know you were, but yeah, we should say that uh, Labour will exist in the next elections because Yair Golan, uh, who was originally from Meretz, said this this uh, week that he will run, and it, it, it will exist. I assume there will be some sort of uh, unity between two parties, uh, Labour and Meretz. But yeah, I think it is interesting the discrepancy between um, Tel Aviv and large parts, uh, large other parts of the of the country. We've been talking today, and in fact for the last several months, about how all these events affect Israel and people in Gaza, obviously, but also uh, how they affect people in diaspora, the Jewish diaspora, Jews around the world. We've been talking about that all throughout, ever since October the 7th. And that's why, in part, we wanted to invite back someone who has already been a guest on Unholy. We had him on the podcast uh, to talk a lot about his book, which was so successful that it's actually coined a phrase that has really entered the language, in which he argued that progressives in particular, who are vigilant in their protection and care for all kinds of minorities, somehow don't extend that protection to Jews. So we thought it would be really interesting to hear how he sees things now. And so we are very delighted to welcome him back. David Badil is a writer and a comedian and the author of the hugely successful polemic Jews Don't Count, which has now just come out in Hebrew. He's also launched this very week a new podcast alongside one of Britain's best-known Muslim politicians called A Muslim and a Jew Go There. He also writes books for children, a star on TV, stage, and cinema. He's been on Unholy before, and we are truly delighted to have him back. David, thank you for talking to us today. Hi, thank you very much, Yonit. Hello, and hello, Jonathan. Hello, David. We are thrilled, like Yonit says, to have you back on. <laughs> Thank you for being thrilled. <laughs> <laughs> his, thr- his thrilled voice sounds exactly like his normal voice, Yeah, by it's the way. weird, isn't it? It freaks <laughs> me out. It freaks yeah. me out. Um, so this is, the book came out in Hebrew, and the introduction you wrote for the Hebrew edition, uh, yeah. you write that it took uh, a while 
for the book to be translated, I think about three years, um, yeah. to be translated into Hebrew. And you sort of go through that, the reasoning for that. First of all, you say, obviously, in Israel, uh, Jews are not a minority, so you would say that Israel uh, and Israel Jews do count. But you talk about the change uh, that happened on October 7th, not only for you, but also for, I think, Israeli Jews who woke up to that realization that we mm. are actually vulnerable. C- can we talk a yeah. little bit about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, um, I don't know. These are the correct reasons for why it wasn't published. I also, in the book, put forward a, uh, for some people, slightly maverick distancing from Israel. That I think that Jews are too often defined by an assumption that they feel incredibly close and incredibly connected to Israel, and and I don't. And I think I think that imagined connection is used to dismiss anti-Semitism in a wider context uh, to reduce it to just being about what happens in the Middle East. So uh, I thought that was maybe another reason. But then I actually did an interview with a guy who, from Haaretz who put forward this idea that Jews not being a minority in Israel, maybe he didn't respond or they felt there was no appetite for a book about Jews being a minority. about how Because the whole book is about Jews are a minority in the West. They're not accepted as a proper minority by the gatekeepers of what a minority is. And that might not speak to a country where they're a majority. I had never really thought about that. And then I thought when I was thinking about that more is maybe October the 7th is key to that because I felt more connected to Israel because of that than perhaps I'd done before. Uh, And I'm afraid that's a very negative thing, which is it speaks to a very bad history, I think, of pogroms and atrocities. And suddenly seeing Israelis suffering that is a point of connection. However, despairing that is but also i wondered if for israelis that that day they woke up to the fact that as it were they were jewish uh, because i mean obviously israelis know they're jewish but i mean in a deeper sense that the jew throughout history is a an object of persecution and maybe israelis hadn't always felt that because they are the majority they've been militarily very successful over over many years you know and suddenly there's this atrocity that speaks of you know the 19th century, 19th century Russia or whatever it might be, rather than, you know, modern day Israel. But I, I do want to dig deeper in that, because when we talked last time, uh, and you said that, you say that in your book as well, that you, you know, you say, you know, my position on Israel is I don't care about it. I wonder how that kind of changed deeply, if it changed deeply for you after after October 7th. Um. Well, I still don't particularly care. Care is slightly, I mean, it sounds much more callous than it is, but I just, I'm just not very engaged with the idea of the Jewish homeland. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and because I'm so keen on Jews operating, as it were, as a minority in the way that other minorities do, and other minorities, and I know the situation is different, but other minorities, when they live in Britain or when they live wherever, they are not expected, I think, to have this deep romantic attachment to whatever their heritage country might be. And in fact, that's quite suspicious. It would, I mean, it would be quite suspicious if a white person was constantly banging on to a second generation Pakistani about how much they feel about Pakistan or whatever. If I was to speak to Phil Wang, a British Chinese comedian, and constantly ask him how he feels about China and how he feels about China doing to the Uyghurs or whatever, that would be really weird, right? Mm-hmm. But there seems to be this acceptance by Jews and an imposition on Jews that they do do that. They do constantly, you know, engage and think about Israel. And I just resist that. And I, um, another Jewish person who I think doesn't want to be identified, so I, I won't, but she whispered to me after my film, my documentary of Jews Don't Cat went out, thank you for being the first Jew ever to stand up and, and say, you know, it's a foreign country, right? And that's really all I'm saying. I'm not saying I hate Israel. I definitely do not hate Israel. It's a foreign country, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and I think that should be okay to say, However, it is the case that I felt very moved and upset and, you know, despairing and all the rest of it about what happened on October the 7th in a way that I might feel about that happening in any other country, but not just it happening in any other country. But I do think that was much more to do, I don't know how else to put this, with the revelation of the Jewishness of it than it was be- it being Israel, if you see what I mean. Mm-hmm. Yes, although I think my response always to that would be, but it was always there, the Jewishness of Israel. It was always the world's only Jewish country. It was always the world's biggest Jewish community okay, yeah. waiting all for would, you to see it, you know. Yeah, but all I would say is, you know, well, I'm not, I'm not saying it, it wasn't there. And I'm not saying, you know, as I say, I don't feel 
you know, remember that when I interviewed Miriam Margulis on my documentary, she's incredibly anti-Israel, very angry about Israel. And that's all to do with the fact she does feel yes. this deep connection with Israel. And thus she feels betrayed and smeared and not in my name and all those kind of things. I don't know. I mean, I, I think the particular nature of that attack, you know, resonated very deeply in me, very badly in me. But But I don't know that I was incredibly more upset than I was by the killing of 11 Jews in Pittsburgh in 2018, if you see what I mean. Jews being killed in that way all over the world will affect me. I don't know that I was more affected because it was in Israel. I think I was affected because it was a lot of people, the biggest uh, killing of Jews since the Holocaust, and in a very particular celebratory way. Here's the thing I was going to go on to say. that It may may take a bit to unpack this, but your position was always very effective in dealing with anti-Semitism because you sealed off, you shut off the route that a lot of people went for, which was to say, ah, oh, he thinks he's talking about anti-Semitism, but really he's trying to shut down discussion of Israel. You, by your position, could close that off completely and go, not interested, not talking about Israel, I'm talking about anti-Semitism. And that was very mm. wrong-footing and very mm. effective. And it, it was really good you were out there doing that. I just want to wonder, I'm just now wondering if the separation of Jews and Israel actually helps people on the other side of the argument in this way. Just today, as you and I, as the three of us are speaking, on the BBC was a a former police chief or a senior police figure who was being asked about the protests each week about Israel and Gaza and whether they're intimidatory or not. And he said, well, we've got to remember Jews and Israel are completely separate. They must be disaggregated. In other words, you can say what you like about Israel. You're not saying anything about Jews. And therefore, Jews in Britain can't really say they're being intimidated by the slogans and the chants and the banners because they're completely different things. I want to push back and say, well, sorry. It's quite true that diaspora Jews are not responsible for what happens in Israel, but they are connected to it. Mm. And you, the critic of Israel, you need to be mindful of that every time you are saying you know, it's genocide, it's Nazis, it's swastikas. Mm. And do not think you've got some halo, protective halo, which says, no, no, I was only talking about Israel. Yeah. Well, I I think you have a point there, which is a really good one and a very complicated one uh, about the relationship of British or American Jews or Jews elsewhere to Israel. I think what needs, what I would say is that there is a Jews don't count element to that, even if you you used a weird word, disaggregate or something, uh, Jews from Israel. Which that was is what the, the policemen used that word. Yeah, what so a strange word. Um, yeah. which, which is, I said this actually on the podcast that you referred to earlier, which is because what had happened was is that I, I was actually doing quite a lot of jokes about from the river to the sea. I was doing quite a lot of jokes, particularly because Charlotte Church had sung it. Uh, and I was sort of trying to get, Saida had said she never says it. And I said, well, you've said it about seven times during this podcast. So I was sort of being quite comedy about it. But then I decided to say, look, I do think when it was projected on the Houses of Parliament, that whether or not I might be slightly more relaxed about that slogan than some other people, I know that a lot of Jews do find it troubling. And I know that a lot of Jews do think that this phrase could be interpreted as the call for the genocide of Jews in Israel, uh, or certainly for the displacement of Jews in Israel. And that that is very deeply troubling to them. And I don't think that the idea that it might be deeply troubling to them plays into the minds of the people projecting it at all. Right. And I do think that, that that's still Jews not counting. Right, because if there are Jews in London who feel troubled by it, then they're, they're they should be considered, and they're not considered, right? And I don't know if that's anything to do with disaggregating Jews in Israel. I'm wondering uh, what the responses have been. They've already received. Obviously, the book is in, in Hebrew. It's out there. The documentary is out there, and it aired in Israel. What are you? What have you been hearing from Israelis about all this? I haven't heard much about the book so far. I mean, lots of people have sent pictures of it to like on Instagram stories. Um, <laughs> well, by the way, what is the title in, in Hebrew? It's, um, well, in English, it's uh, Jews Don't Count. In Hebrew, it's called Los which means, if I really translate it literally, it's like no one's counting the Jews. But it's the All same right. thing. It's been it's, it's a good translation, by the way. Yeah, um, good. That's good. That's you. good. Not only the actually, title, the whole book. So I will, I will answer your question, but the, uh, interestingly, the book has just come out again, as it were, or reprinted in Germany. Germany, yeah. they wouldn't use the title. Uh, they were oh, too wow. frightened of it. Uh, okay. And they thought, Judenzeilen nicht, which is the literal translation, was too 
incendiary for German audiences. And so they called it Und die Juden, question mark, meaning and the Jews, question mark, which I always thought sounded creepier than the, 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 the original title and weirder and something like a Nazi commandant would say. Uh, but, did you write um, a specific introduction in for the German edition? Too? I did write an introduction for oh, the German. So we shouldn't yeah. feel special, for, is what you're and, saying. No, okay. no, well, no, it's okay. a different introduction. <laughs> and I've written a different introduction for America. Some countries, not bothered. Brazil, no, they're yeah. fine. Uh, but um, what I would say is, so far, nothing on the book. When the film went out, I did get some quite angry stuff uh, sent to me by Israelis. I didn't quite know exactly what they were angry about, but it seemed that the idea that I would say, look, I don't feel deeply connected to this country, felt like as some kind of betrayal. Uh, and, and I don't know how much Israelis feel that or not. Uh, well, I, I sometimes think it doesn't really work the other way around, by the way. Like, <laughs> I never get a sense from Israelis that they're very bothered about the fact that diaspora Jews might be feeling, might be getting anti-Semitism. I, I never get any sense, certainly not from the Israeli government, that like, oh, we, maybe we should behave like not, Exactly like this yeah. for loads of reasons. Really for loads of reasons. Concerned. But one of them might be Jews are getting really, really shat on all over the world. Not here. They, they, I never get any sense that that side of the connection is an issue. Okay, I think it is. By the way, <laughs> I okay. think for Israelis, it actually is. I, I, they, I, they are concerned. Okay, about it. it's not something I've ever heard from. Mm. I mean, including you know, obviously, the, uh, lots of Israelis are very liberal, very anti the government, whatever, which is great. And you know, the stereotyping of Israelis is a problem, but. It's just not something that I've ever, <laughs> no Israeli has ever phoned me up and I've got mm -hmm. Israeli friends and said, are you okay in London? I, I will say that just generally, I don't know if this is a known fact, but the Mossad has, I think, managed to prevent tens of terror attacks since October 7th against Jewish targets around the world, against Jewish institutions around the world. I think that's important. I think that saying that the Israeli government is not concerned about what happens to Jewish institutions and Jews around the world is is a bit much. Uh, I think there are Israeli, um, at least politicians, that do care about this. And I think that the public here in Israel does care about that a lot. I, I can tell you what made the news so that you know that, that they care about it a lot. Maybe you Actually, should get more Israeli friends who care, David. I don't so know. That might Maybe be the that's problem. the that that's might be the issue. problem. But, but I, if I mean, we, I mean, yeah. I think it, what I, there is a lot of caring, for, you know, on these WhatsApp groups uh, from in London or whatever about Israel, and, and in a way, I kind of think like the point is to be more positive about it is that if what has happened now is a point of connection, it does make people like me who might have felt less connected or whatever, like look, we are all Jews together, as it were, fighting this overwhelming persecution that erupts in various different ways in different parts of the world, you know, then we should recognize that connection and, and it should mm -hmm. work both ways. And maybe it works more both ways than I realize. To be fair to, to what you've just said, I did go and uh, promote uh, at the Jewish Museum in Sao Paulo. I went to in Brazil just at the end of last year. And October the 7th happened just before I went and I called the Jewish Museum and said, like, what's your security like? And they said, it's good, it's fine, but also don't worry, this is a Catholic country, we don't have much issue with that kind of thing here. Mm -hmm. And then literally a week before I went, Mossad uncovered three different terrorist cells planning to attack Jewish institutions, specifically in Sao Paulo. Uh, yeah. And I went anyway, on the, on the basis that a good time to go is just after Mossad have closed down those <laughs> terrorist cells. <laughs> yeah, it's That's actually good. quite good timing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> The environment you're in, in 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 Britain, and the you know the attention that there is on Israel. This is it's just in my mind because this goes back and forth always. Where there are some people on these sort of you know the concerned Jews WhatsApp groups that we will both be part of, who will be saying, well, the sheer amount of attention, the fact there is this mass demonstration, there are mass demonstrations every week, the fact that you know it leads the news all the time. That itself is indicative of some weird exceptionalism about Jews. And there'll be others who say, no, it's nothing to do with that. It's the fact that what's happening in Gaza is exceptional. And therefore, that's the only reason it's getting so much attention, because it is worse than all the other things, the other big news stories that might compete with it for attention. What's your view on that issue, that debate? Well, actually, so this podcast that I'm doing with Baroness Adavasi, I did bring up on a previous pilot, which we, we haven't put out, 
but we haven't, she hasn't answered me yet, which is the question that I think a lot of Jews want to ask, which is given that there are a lot of conflicts all over the world and a lot of conflicts involving Muslims in Myanmar, in China or whatever, and a lot of mistreatment of Muslims, why is this one the one that constantly dominates the news headlines and may feel like that's the one that uh, that community most identifies with as their struggle and the one that they need to come out and march for. And she said, oh, oh, yes, let's talk about that. And then we didn't. And hopefully, I think we might talk about it next week. But I obviously, I know that some Jews feel, I don't know if I do, I think it's more complex than this, feel that, that there is an anti-Semitic component to the focus on this particular struggle. Mm-hmm. I think there might be a component. I think there's many other things going on as well, which is the way the left in general, and I'm not talking about Muslims now, I'm talking about the left in general, which is mainly made up of, you know, just progressives, have decided it is their cause. This is the one. Uh, and I think that's to do with notions of power and notions of whiteness. And I think that ties in to uh, sometimes the way that the Muslim community can feel that their concerns are not listened to and that they're ignored and that they are othered. And that sort of like speaks to them, therefore, that therefore this is the one that they need to push back on most. I think that's very complex and not straightforwardly to do with anti-Semitism in the way that some people want it to be. Mm-hmm. So so let's talk a little bit about that podcast that you just started, right? A Jew and a Muslim go there. We're uh, yeah. a Jew and a Jew that go there. So, uh, and obviously yeah. we have some disagreements. Yeah. So uh, so tell us how that works. Well, it was actually, so, so a woman who's, quite well known here a friend of mine called Jemima Khan Goldsmith and I'm using her full name there because she is sort of Muslim and Jewish she converted to Islam to marry Imran Khan and she has Muslim children but she herself has some Jewish heritage on her father's side she's very interested in bridge building and what I guess is called interfaith but I don't use that word since I'm an atheist but you know intercommunity bridge building or whatever and it's her idea I mean I don't think it's a like I feel the idea must have been around elsewhere, but her idea to put me and Saeed Avasi together. What interested me was just at the moment, it, you know, there's all these podcasts about the news. Just at the moment, the news is very dominated by stuff about Jews and Muslims. And most of those podcasts about the news do not have Jews and Muslims on them. They have two white men on them. And I'm excluding Jews there from the category of whiteness. They just have two white Christian men, normally quite posh, talking about the news. And Saida said uh, in the trail, Saida said, you know, we're often talked about, but this is us talking about ourselves. And I thought, given that we are supposed to be, it's often missed out, particularly with Jews, a culture that allows minorities to define themselves and their own experience rather than having it imposed on them, then this would be a good idea. I've only done one proper show so far, which I, I enjoyed. I thought it was, you know, it made a start. And we should just say for people listening outside Britain, your co-host is Saida Varsi, who is a Tory politician. She was uh, a would-be member of parliament. She actually ended up being appointed to the House of Lords by David Cameron, I think. She's a Tory. She was in his cabinet. She was in. She, she was, was in- but, uh, but, but not as an MP. She was there as a member of the House of Lords. Right. And, um, but no, an important politician and has been a really kind of dissenting voice in the Conservative Party calling out Islamophobia there. And so there is a kind of symmetry there, isn't there? Because you are often, you know, you're identified broadly with the left and yet you call out anti-Semitism on the left often. And then she's broadly of the centre right and calling out anti-Muslim prejudice on the right. Well, yeah, she's, she's had a bit of a good week because I don't know how much there'd be awareness of this in Israel, but there's been a big old thing here because after there was a a big thing in Parliament that you may or may not have discussed to have a ceasefire vote that went all wrong. Uh, and meanwhile, there was a huge crowd outside demonstrating for a ceasefire. Then a uh, pretty right-wing Tory MP called Lee Anderson essentially said London is in the hands of the Islamists. And, and it's interesting because that's been compared a lot in a way that I'm not always that comfortable with to what if this were Jews. That happens a lot now, is people react to other types of racism or implied racism by saying let's imagine if this were Jews which is interesting uh, because it is my position that Jews are low in the mix of what people being concerned about racism but that's mainly on the left that would be mainly on the left but one thing that is very important I'm trying to talk about this on the podcast which is so when I wrote Jews Don't Count 
I was talking about Jews in the sole smorgasbord of discrimination of minorities. And that actually includes gender minorities and disability and everything. The things that progressives care about, Jews are low in that mix. What has slightly happened now, particularly with this Islamophobia in the Tory party, is it's become just about Jews and Muslims. So I was at the CST dinner yesterday. Uh, the Community Security Trust is this organization that provides security for Jews. And Rishi Sunak was there. And he announced a certain amount of money uh, that was going to go to keep protecting Jews under his government. And indeed, for the next four years, he's going to lock it in and whatever, which obviously got a very good response. But I noticed this morning that the Baroness was a bit troubled by that. And she was troubled by it in terms of what money may or may not be for Muslim communities. And I'm not that keen on this constant mirroring, is what I'm saying. I think it needs to be talked about in a slightly more 360-degree way rather than constantly each minority looking over its shoulder to what the other minority has got or hasn't got in terms of attention, finance, care from government, care from progressives, whatever else it might be. Give the man some podcasting tips, Jonathan. Of course, saying a Jew from Israel and a Jew from England is really, I don't want to say separate religions, but separate denominations for yeah, sure. Well, it's a very I interesting, mean, which, which one is there a larger sort of cultural distance between you and uh, <laughs> Saeed Avasi or me and your need? Um, no, I think, um, well, first of all, you should make sure that your the conversation you have on save it all for the podcast. That's my right. one bit of advice because it's yeah. very tempting to do your best stuff on WhatsApp messages. Um, <laughs> yeah. But actually save it for the podcast would be my thing. Um, but I think it's good. I mean, and is your plan for it to be a kind of rolling ongoing thing? Do you think there is life in this all the time or is this for very much for this moment? Well, I'll see about that. I mean, <laughs> I, I get the impression that other people on the team are very keen on it being going on for a long time uh, and that might be nice uh, and obviously it'd be great for it to be a hit or one always wants a hit but at the same time there's a sort of more practical thing which is at this particular moment the news agenda is dominated in a way that I don't think I mean in Britain by uh, that we've never seen before by stuff about Jews and Muslims I mean it's mad you know I'd never be able to predict that that would be on the front pages of the news, things about Islamophobia, about anti-Semitism. And so while that's happening, it does feel meat, I think, that there is a podcast with a Jew and a Muslim in it. Mm. And, and, you know, it's a it's a genre, isn't it? Like two people talk about the news. It's a genre. But if the news is full of Jews and Muslims, then there should be a Jew and a Muslim doing it. That's basically my position. It may be the case, and in a way, God willing, and obviously I don't believe in God, but God willing, <laughs> that a year from now, and things get better in the Middle East, you know, I say that, you know, not with much optimism, but let's say they do, that they Jews and Muslims will not dominate the news agenda, and then there may be less need for this podcast. I mean, David, part of the whole idea of, of Jews Don't Count was also your uh, asking, why don't Jews play Jews? I think it was originally yeah. you tied that to uh, uh, Helen Mirren playing Golda. And the Oscars are right around the corner. We see Killian Murphy. We see Bradley Cooper obviously non-Jews playing very Jewish characters. I yeah. wonder what you think about that. And does that also, you know, if you dig into that, also kind of assist in that notion of Jews being very white, very not a minority? I mean, the visuals of that are also very clear, aren't they? So the posi- my position on that hasn't changed, which is that for me, I'm not very interested in acting. Uh, you know, I mean, I like I like seeing a nice bit of acting, but I'm not interested in, you know, whether or not acting is, is important. What I'm interested in is what the authenticity casting strictures leaving out Jews says about what people think about Jews. So mm-hmm. that's quite a complex sentence. What I mean is that it seems to me that authenticity casting, which is a notion that a minority, and that indeed relates again to all minorities, so recently uh, the woman who was in CODA, who I think its name is Marley Martin, I might have got that wrong, in which case mm-hmm. I apologise, but something like that, mm-hmm. said death right. is not a costume, uh, by which she means, which is interesting because actors wear costumes, but anyway, which she means that I as a deaf person do not want to see my disability mimicked by someone on camera. So what, what you realise then is that what was originally perhaps with authenticity casting a notion of employment, like there's not enough jobs being given to black actors or disabled actors, where it's now become more about respect hasn't it? It's Mm. more like if they're mimicking a deaf person, then something a bit, you know, like something mocking about that, perhaps. Uh, And so it has to be deaf people. 
So what's, what's at the heart of that? A notion that the lived experience of deaf people is too precious, too worthy of respect, which obviously it is, to be mimicked by somebody who's not deaf. So if you then leave one minority out of that stricture, what are you saying about them? They don't need it. They're not really, not that they're not worthy of respect, but the fact is that their experience is so undifferent from the majority. Uh, and that the majority, of course, can be played by anyone. The white Christian majority, they can be played by anyone, that we don't have to give them this special treatment. Why do they need it? I mean, Sarah Silverman put it more simply in my documentary when she said, I'll tell you what people think. When I said, what does it mean for what people think about Jews? They think they're fine, they're rich, they run Hollywood. They don't need it. And by extension, by the way, they don't need any of the strictures or protections that the left offers to minorities in its diversity initiatives or whatever. And so that's always been my problem. And there have been one or two very extreme versions of it, most notably Bradley Cooper uh, and his nose being nominated for an Oscar for makeup. That That is amazing because that is And Golden was too, by the way. Yeah, Goldus is there too. So they're both nominated uh, for literal Jew face, as I think I said, on uh, X. I hate calling it X. Uh, but Bradley is a bit more obvious, I think. I'll tell you something as well. Is A lot of this is about the erasure of the Jewish element of stories. Like in Oppenheimer, it's more about that for me. Is that, he's a, you know, he's brilliant, Killian Murphy, but he, he isn't Jewish in it and doesn't really carry any... And he's mentioned the Jewishness, but the Jewishness of the Manhattan Project is a really big deal. And the fact that all those physicists were Jewish. And that isn't in the story. And it seems to be not in the story partly because of that. I watched, um, this won't not be a film that many of you have seen, but I happened, it was on telly the other day, Benediction, a film about Siegfried Sassoon by Terence Davis. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a good film. It's totally about his homosexuality and about how he got married and how he struggled with that and whatever. Sassoon was Jewish. Uh, there was a very complicated background to that, to the fact that his father had to convert in order to get an inheritance that he wouldn't other have got. But it's an extraordinary story. If you actually look at pictures of Sassoon, I would say he clearly is Jewish. Not a mention of it in the story, in the film. I mean, literally not a mention. And that happens a lot. Jewishness is sort of not considered sort of story worthy in the way it used to be, I think. It's funny in, in both Maestro and Oppenheimer, it's, it's mentioned. Yeah, but so fleetingly as to make you wonder if they felt like, look, we've got to have it in there somewhere. We've done it. We don't have to do any more. Um, yeah, well, there's a it weird, doesn't drive the story. It completely doesn't drive the story, which in in the case of Leonard Bernstein is completely mad. I mean, quite mad in terms of Oppenheimer. Although Oppenheimer was at least very, uh, you know, he, he he liked to keep his own Jewishness under the hat, and Julius was his first name, so he went J Robert Oppenheimer because he didn't like Julius because it's too close to Jew. He was in the closet. Leonard Bernstein loved being a Jew, was always banging on about it. His music is unbelievably influenced by his Jewishness. So it's kind of mad. I mean, there's actually that scene, there's a scene at the start of Maestro where he meets uh, Felicia Montalegre and they're sort of talking about, and it's a very over-expositional scene. And you hear the word Jew about three times in that bit. And that's kind of it. It's, it's very odd. But why do then Jews in Hollywood play along with this? The notion right. that uh, Hollywood is run by Jews is so not true anymore, mm-hmm. right? It's really not true anymore. And, uh, you know, I, I'm part of various initiatives to try and make Hollywood have any recognition of Jews. As you may know, there was an Academy Museum that was opened recently that just didn't tell the stories of any of the big Jewish studio mm-hmm. owners. They, they were just sidelined. I signed a letter and actually co-wrote a letter to the Academy asking for Jewish to be one of the categories that could be included in the list of minorities, because uh, they have a list of minorities and these have to be included for a film to qualify as best films. Jewish isn't in it. Jewish isn't one of the minorities that is considered one of the minorities that you can tick in order to say our film includes reference or stories or, you know, casting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and David Schwimmer and lots of people, uh, Deborah Messing and I signed, signed nothing back from the Academy so far. So the notion that the Academy is very Jewish, absolutely, uh, Hollywood is very Jewish, absolutely not true anymore. Uh, I think in the old days, the truth of it wasn't true either, because even though there might have been more Jews involved, they were never bothered about telling stories for Jews. And they were, they were bothered about just making films that were going to do well. And, and sometimes that involved Jews and sometimes it didn't quite a lot of time. It involved Jews pretending not to be Jews, right? This whole thing about like you have like lots of like non-Jews playing Jews in the, in the past, that would have been Kirk Douglas pretending not to be Jewish and changing mm-hmm. his name from 
Sorry, I don't, you, you, you might know it, Jonathan, but the very long Eastern it's, European. It's a Yankelovich, isn't it? I'm going yeah, to look it up. Yeah, but I think that's yeah, what it is. Yeah. yeah, basically, for years, Jews had to pretend not to be Jews to be in movies. Now, non-Jews are just allowed to play Jews without any problem. It, there is. It's a Danilovich, which I really should know because the shtetl my family came from is Danilovich. I yeah. mean, that's quite. Um, I think that yeah. would you know you may you may guess that someone with that name is Jewish. <laughs> Yeah, you may guess, uh, <laughs> and you know, it was it was ov- it was well known for for years that you couldn't have a very Jewish name or you couldn't be obviously Jewish and be in the movies. But here's the thing: I bef- I thought, and and you know, still think that you were that there were signs after Jews don't count that you were really making progress on this, and that, that a lot of progressives were rethinking their position. And I wondered if you see any signs that that is continuing. Or has it in some ways gone into reverse? And I come back to this perhaps since October the 7th. Um, well, it certainly has in some courses gone into reverse without any doubt. Um, I did see some progress. I rather optimistically, and I'm not much of an optimist, uh, would refer before October the 7th if people ask me, do you, you know, do you think the book and the film and that the stuff you do has had an impact? I say, yeah, there's a slight shifting of the dial. Uh, Jews are more in the conversation now. And I, I myself would see it because people, institutions would phone me up. Institutions like, I don't know, HSBC, I've done, or CAA, the agency, would phone me up and basically say, oh, we did a whole week of diversity initiatives after Black Lives Matter. And we realise now that we didn't do anything about anti-Semitism. And maybe we should, and then I'd be called in and do a two-hour session uh, just talking about my book and stuff. And, and there was quite a lot of this sense of like, oh, maybe Jews are at the table of diversity uh, for, for a little bit. Uh, no, I definitely think that has been pushed back. I don't know that it's been pushed back forever. And also, I wonder if some of the pushback is just fear. Mm-hmm. Just like people are very frightened at the moment of even saying the word Jew and sort of talking mm-hmm. about Jews and, you know, in the wider community, in the wider sort of, you know, artistic or British or whatever world, it feels to me like, don't go there. Like, you know, let's not go there because uh, we don't want to get into trouble. And there's, there's a lot of people who don't know, you know, they don't know what the right thing to say is. They don't, they don't know. They, they're worried about taking sides. It's all that kind of nonsense. Um, I don't know if this is worth saying, but I think when something is straightforwardly, and it's odd to say this, anti-Semitic and can not be definitely linked to the conflict in Gaza, you still get more energy around it than used to. So, for example, when that Polish, there's a mad Polish MP who, with a fire extinguisher, it's quite a funny bit of footage, Mm -hmm. put out a menorah at Hanukkah in the Polish government because he said there shouldn't be a Jewish symbol in this Christian place. I noticed when I posted about that, I just got wholehearted support. And I think that's because people, with a sigh of relief, can think, well... This isn't anything to do with Israel. Hooray. We can, we can, we can get behind this one. Well, you mentioned that some people don't like to go there because they're afraid and they don't want to get into trouble. We're glad that we did go there with you because we like to get into trouble, David. So <laughs> we really, we're really glad that you talked to us today and Thank good you, luck with need. everything. And Thank we you will, very much. Um, I do hope the book sells well in Israel. And, uh, you know, when it, when it's all over, I'm, I'm going to come to Israel and talk more about it. We're waiting for you here. Thanks, David. Thank you very much, David. You know, Jonathan, I think you could have given him some good, the secret tips, the good tips, like you keep the good whiskey for the new podcast. I felt like yeah, you had some other maybe, tips. That maybe you didn't want me to hear. So <laughs> No, I was thinking that's, that's offline because we have too many, there are too many rivals in the podcast space. <laughs> So the secret sauce I will share with him, with David, uh, uh, who was uh, uh, brilliantly interesting as always. Um, I will share that with him privately. I don't want to give away our magic formula. <laughs> Agreed. So part of our magic formula is our award season. Every week is award season on Unholy with a chutzpah and a mensch award. Shall we revert to type with you handing out our 
chutzpah prize. Just feels right, doesn't it? I think that the chutzpah of the week cannot go to anyone but Yoav Kish, education minister from the Likud, in a move that raised a few eyebrows a few weeks ago. He decided not to award the Israel Prize. We should say the Israel Prize is the most prestigious award the state can bestow. He said in all of the fields, like humanities, culture, science, what we usually give, we will not be giving out those categories. We will only have one new category called civic heroism and mutual responsibility because of the war. This in itself was slightly a bizarre move because, you know, in every, Israel has had its own tensions and times of war. The Israel Prize wasn't canceled, but this was essentially almost canceling the prize, leaving one category. Now, what happened was that uh, this week was the Israeli journalist Ben Kaspita revealed the reason behind Kish's decision to cancel most of the fields, and that is the identity of the winner in the category of uh, innovation and entrepreneurship. The winner, the committee decided, will be Eyal Waldman. Eyal Waldman is a prominent high-tech entrepreneur, founder of the high-tech company uh, Mellanox. He's also been a vocal uh, protester against the government during the judicial overhaul, even more so against uh, the prime minister after October 7th. This is uh, very personal for him. His daughter, Daniela, and her fiance were murdered at the Nova Party on October 7th. Um, he himself, by the way, has said that he has received already the calls from the committee, essentially trying to find out if he will uh, who will be well behaved uh, in the ceremony he assured them that he will be but uh, Kish is not really denying that uh, uh, Waldman himself uh, was supposed to receive that uh, uh, prize in that category. Uh, we should say maybe that the Israel Prize is not the property, nor not of the education minister, nor of the government. It is a prize, as we said, to be bestowed upon people who excel in their field. Uh, their political ideas are not really relevant. So a worthy winner uh, for our Chutzpah Prize. For Mensch, and we often have found ourselves doing this, uh, maybe making it a posthumous prize. But I wanted to uh, nominate Charlie Bitton, a uh, former member of the Knesset uh, who died this week, age 76. I partly have a personal soft spot here. Uh, I interviewed Charlie Bitton when I was 18 years old. I know I was weird. Actually, I was 19. Let me correct that. I was 19. You were so um, weird. And <laughs> I was, it's still very, very weird. It was an interview in Hebrew. The tape will exist somewhere, but I'm not going to hand it over to you, Yoni. Of course you're going to hand it over to me. Oh my God, was, by next week, he, we're going to find this recording. I'm just saying to our listeners, continue, Jonathan. He, he was a founder of Israel's Black Panther movement, which sort of took its lead from the American Black Panther movement in protesting about inequality. He was from a working class Jerusalem neighborhood. Uh, he claimed uh, and described powerfully a life of huge discrimination for Mizrahi, uh, North African, Middle Eastern Jews like him, and was a master of the sort of political gesture, the political action, often the political stunt in one move. He and his comrades stole a whole lot of milk from the doorsteps of the Ashkenazi neighborhood and redistributed them to the poorer kids in the poorer side of town to dramatize the social and economic gap in the country. Uh, he sat with the Jewish Arab Hadash party the sort of that grew out of Israel's communist party. Big peacenik, one of the first people to meet Yasser Arafat, but a real campaigner who stirred the conscience of Israel to an issue that I think would then, uh, you know, become central in Israeli politics, the, that sort of ethnic and class divide, and really became a sort of spokesman for his generation, but also for the Mizrahi community of Israel. Uh, the story was I interviewed him. Uh, he was in the Knesset. He had to step out. He said, sir, I'll just be one or two moments. He left. He never came back. <laughs> and it remained a mystery to me. It was always that little incomplete interview. I will never What did you say to him, Jonathan? <laughs> you know, he was a busy man. I was a 19-year-old visiting <laughs> student from Britain. Uh, but he was a wonderful, very charismatic, really wonderful speaker. And it was a great privilege to meet him. And uh, um, so we give our mentor award to Charlie Bitton. There is an Israel before Charlie Bitton and there's an Israel after. He changed this country and he put the light and the spotlight and kind of hung the lantern on the issue of the discrimination against uh, Mizrahi Jews and his uh, life's work uh, is still happening. The change is, you know, as change is a slow thing, but it, it, it happened a lot due to, to him. I think that anyone who still thinks that, and it connects a little bit to our Badil conversation, that Jews are 
only white should maybe read the story of uh, Charlie Beaton. I think that's uh, uh, deeply uh, important. And uh, let's put it this way, uh, Mr. Friedland, either you bring me that recording or I will put out anything I have of you of age 19. And you know that I do. So I would take that very seriously. Um, okay, that's a threat. Um, it's we, a, it's an ultimatum. Let's call it an ultimatum. Why threat? Threat is a big word. We, meanwhile, will say, rate, review, <laughs> Uh, and recommend the podcast uh, wherever you can. We will say our thank yous to Omer Primat, Gaia Glazer, and Omri Barak, and we shall meet next week. See you then. <laughs>